for this Sports Career Podcast, episode 341. How can sport integrity support athletes after a career in professional sports? Hello, Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers, and this episode is really dedicated to Sport Integrity Week, which is provided by SEGA, which is Sport Integrity Global Alliance. This podcast is really tailored about the education of integrity in sport and why it's so important. So as always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in sport integrity, but also understanding how to support elite athletes after their career in professional sport. So I really do hope this episode can support your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Kate Tamer. Kate is the co-founder and chief operations officer at Axis Stars, which is a private support network for professional talent in the sports and entertainment industry. It's a network which is a place, a safe environment for athletes to get the right support during and after their career in professional sports. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Kate as a podcast special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Kate will share her sports career journey and explain to you why sport integrity is so key when supporting elite athletes after a career in professional sport. Have a listen and enjoy. Kate, it's a joy to have you on the Sports Career Podcast. Please you share to the listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Well, probably officially probably only sort of eight or nine years ago I guess so um I've always been a sports fan although as a Sheffield Wednesday supporter you would um, debate whether that really is football some of the time but uh, from a young age I was uh, going to away games at Plymouth on Wednesday nights and all kinds of things like that so I've always been uh, really interested in sport and passionate about watching it and everything. Um, I worked in a whole range of industries through my career. So I started off in mobile phones. So when Orange was a network in the UK and launched camera phones that people didn't really have any reason to take photos on their phones. And now look what's happened 20 odd years on. We've got 25,000 photos on our phones and stuff. But um, so, yeah, I worked there. So it was sort of heavily involved in technology then. Um, I then went to Unilever. So that was just as online grocery delivery stuff was happening. So managing the Tesco.com and Asda.com business for them across all of their brands. So getting to work on uh, Marmite and Pepper Army and Ben and & Jerry's and PG Tips and all kinds of uh, household brands. Um, then I moved into entertainment. So I was at Disney, uh, working in Disney store in e-commerce and then moved into um, beauty at L'Oreal. So was digital director for their consumer products division. So Maybelline, Garnier, Softsheen Carson, Essie, et cetera. Um, but for both my L'Oreal role and my Disney role, 
I was the most senior person in a digital capacity. And so we're spending quite a lot of time educating people around the business about digital and particularly at a time that companies were sort of transforming to be able to use digital tools in a better way and structure their teams differently, et cetera. And I've always kind of wanted to be able to work for a wide range of companies. I've never wanted to sort of be pigeonholed into a particular industry or anything like that. So at the time, eight years ago, I thought um, that if I didn't become a consultant quite quickly, everybody was going to get to grips with all of this digital stuff and there'd be no need for consultants anymore. Eight years on, I realized that there is plenty more consulting to be done and plenty of time to um, get people up to speed. But by starting my own business, it meant that I could really start to look at projects that I wanted to get involved in because I really enjoyed particular areas. And so sport was obviously one of those. I started to um, kind of white label myself into some sports marketing agencies. So people like Seven League, who are now part of IMG. Uh, so with them, I worked on a pitch for FIFA about creating a fan movement where we created groups of fans for every country that was in the 2018 World Cup and um, kind of set them challenges and took them to matches at the World Cup, took them to the best awards, the E-World Cup, the Women's World Cup in 2019. So lots of great stuff with them to really sort of bring the voice of the fans into the FIFA organization because obviously they weren't necessarily that well known for listening to fans and uh, involving them in their strategy and stuff so that was a great project to be part of. Um, I also was kind of friends with a few footballers and sort of helped them on different projects. Um, worked with Stan Collymore when he left TalkSport we created an app and used to live stream his uh, Call Collymore talk show over Periscope when that was a thing so I was sort of producing uh, that show which was a, a bit of a different thing to do but cool nonetheless in terms of getting the guests in and having the phone-ins and all that sort of stuff so again good way to be sort of using technology and I suppose to go back to the digital element sport is is a real area that has actually taken quite a while to adopt some of the digital transformation within organizations you know there there is stuff sort of forward facing in terms of apps and things that people get involved in obviously for scores and fantasy football and all those kind of things but in terms of the real transformation and using digital tools to do better business sport was quite backward I guess so it was an obvious thing for me to get involved in that way as well. What an awesome answer. I'm going to decode a little bit of that because I know it will relate to listeners. I want to go back to Orange because I saw on your LinkedIn, it was your, you're on a graduate scheme there and yeah. you're there for like seven years. So I was just curious for the listeners, first role, first job, like how did that graduate scheme set you up to all the other experiences looking back? Yeah, I mean, brilliantly. It was it was a really great scheme. It was a two-year scheme. You did um, sort of three months in lots of different areas of the the business. And I was on the marketing sort of strand of it, I guess. So I got to work in the um, Orange retail team. So I was producing their like in-store magazine and things. Then I was in the CRM team. And this was still when you posted letters out to people when their mobile phone contract was coming to an end and to get them to renew it. So we would do like mail outs that way. 
Um, I worked in the brand team and it was just when France Telecom bought Orange. So I did a rebrand of a France Telecom um, consulting company in France to become Orange. Um, and I studied French at uni. So that was quite good that I was able to use that. Uh, what else? Oh, I worked in the pricing team developing. Um, we had these tariffs that were named after animals. So there was like a dolphin tariff and a I can't remember there was a canary or something maybe but I worked in the pricing team sort of business case all of that and then I moved into the indirect sales team so that was working with people like Carphone Warehouse, Phones for You, The Link, pretty much all of those have closed down now I think but um, it was quite interesting to sort of follow it through of having developed the pricing and then go into that team to be selling it into the trade and explaining to them why they should buy it and that sort of stuff so yeah, I was able to kind of seamlessly move off that into a, a full-time job at Orange. And I did a few different jobs over the five years that I stayed there after that. But it definitely gave me a really good grounding in terms of all the different elements of marketing and obviously helped me. I think one of the things that I always say is so important about a career is the network that you create and the different people that you meet and, you know, people sort of come back around in different companies or different projects and stuff and so definitely the more contacts you can make the bigger your network the better in terms of being able to move into other areas and also just for people listening on the entertainment side so let's say disney as an example because i want people to think like you don't have to start in the sports industry you can pivot through the skills you have which you've done through like L'Oreal with a massive brand. I'm going to go Disney because it's pure entertainment. Like how did the mindset shift of actually sport is part of the bubble of fashion, music as an entertainment industry, then we're just working in the sports industry from a skill set standpoint of working in it? Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of your sort of area of expertise, you know, I'll speak from a marketing perspective, but the, the key thing for marketing is you need to understand who your audience is you need to understand what your product is and how that product meets the needs of your audience. And if you're putting the audience in the center of what you're doing and making sure that whatever you're developing or promoting actually genuinely meets the need that they've got, then it doesn't matter whether it's sport, whether it's entertainment, whether it's banking, finance, whatever, it's the same principles. So, and that's the same, whether you're in sales, whether you're in legal, whether you're in, um, I don't know, HR, you know, all of those things, you've always got a, a core set of skills that it doesn't really matter what the kind of industry is. And I suppose that's one of the things that from every job, so going from Orange after seven years to Unilever was quite a, a sort of surprising thing at the time in that a lot of people who work in the mobile industry, like still my some of my best mates still work in mobile now. And I was working with them at Orange in 2000 because, you know, there are multiple handset manufacturers, there's multiple networks, and it's easy to kind of still feel like you're doing new jobs and be moving around, but you stay in that industry. And I really didn't want to just work in the mobile industry. And that's what appealed to me about Unilever. But the sort of stepping stone to get me out of Orange to Unilever was that I'd developed an intranet for the Orange retail stores. And that gave me just about enough vocabulary to be talking about websites that when I was interviewed at Unilever, I could, you know, talk a good game in terms of what I could do. And I suppose I always back myself that I'll work out how to do something once I get there, but I've never gone into a job 
being 100% confident that I could do it. I've always looked at like, what are the things that sort of map to this? So, you know, same to go from Unilever to Disney. At Unilever, I was managing Tesco.com presence for Unilever kind of thing. So yes, I was buying media, you could say, from a point of view of I was paying Tesco for the ads on the website. And I'd done some interesting research with Tesco about shopper behavior and that kind of thing, which was all very useful. But I'd never done like Google paid search campaigns. I'd not done an affiliate program. I'd not done um, any of the sort of true traffic driving to a Disney, to an e-commerce website. But again, I understood the principles enough from what I'd been doing to be able to get my foot in the door. And then once I got in there, I worked out what I was doing kind of thing. So again, I'd say, and I think particularly with women that I don't know the exact stat, but I think you know, a, a, a guy looks at a job description and if they can't do 100% of it, they will apply anyway. Whereas a woman will look and and sort of be much harder on herself in terms of, well, I don't know all of this, so I'm not going to risk applying. So my advice would always be like, go for what you want to have a go at, because I think individual skills are easy enough to teach. It's like attitude and enthusiasm and your approach to stuff that is so important and you can nail that. So just back yourself to work out the rest once you get in there. 100%. I've heard that on the podcast as well about sort of male and female different approaches of applying and not applying with regards to our traits and characters. So yeah. women listening, just apply and like you said, figure out when you're in the interview room. Final thing, because actually two things I want to mention, because it's quite important from my experience. But just from that point of like you figured out how to you understand websites. So for example, I built my own website and it just led to this sort of roller coaster of email marketing, getting like, say using, like you said, Periscope for me, I did StreamYard. Like how important is it for the listeners to may not be an expert, all these digital tools, but understand how things work because digital marketing is really the way forward. I know I don't want to go in the rabbit hole of AI, but it's here and it's now, but reflecting on the career journey, how is you being always involved in digital supported you. Those skills are so applicable to today's way of business, if that makes sense. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that side of things. I mean, I think quite early on, I I took the decision that I wanted to specialise in digital. And, um, you know, that does mean that there aren't necessarily always the same sort of career progression opportunities if you specialise. So for example, when I was at L'Oreal, I didn't really fit in there um sort of process because they you would be digital director but then you'd become like a general manager then you'd become a country manager and I didn't want to do that because I wanted to say stay specialized in digital because I enjoy you know learning about new things teaching other people about these things that kind of thing so I I sort of specifically chose that and that's why I suppose being a consultant works quite well for me because I can work on lots of different projects. I can work with lots of different companies, etc. What I would say, though, when I am doing like training sessions for um, marketing directors and things, I think it can be easy to sort of feel a bit panicked by digital in that there are new things coming all the time you know you look at the amount of social networks that people have tried to start and and as a consultant I will always download them and I'll you know try to get to grips with them but I look at my phone now and I've got you know house party still on there peach still on there none of these things have really survived 
Um, and so one thing I would always say to people is just because it exists doesn't mean you have to do it. Like you don't need to be on all of these different platforms. But equally, if you think about if you are a marketing director, you don't know how a printing press works in terms of being able to take it apart and rebuild it or knowing, you know, where the ink's flowing in and all of this sort of stuff. But you would confidently pay for a double page spread in a magazine and just know that that's going to appear kind of thing. And so I think there are differing levels of immersion that you need on the different channels, depending on what your role is. I think it's absolutely good to have a sort of broad understanding of what are the things out there at the moment what are the options in terms of channels that could be used and communications methods and all of that kind of thing but you don't need to know it in super detail depending on what your job is so I think it can feel a bit overwhelming sometimes thinking that you've got to be up to speed with everything and some of it might not even be relevant for your industry for your company whatever so or where your audience is which you mentioned exactly earlier exactly mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah, final thing I want to say, because you've said it a few times, and I just want the listeners, if they haven't worked in the sports industry, so even I'm experiencing, how do you find working in the sports industry? It's very project-like led, meaning, you know, sports industry so fast growing. There's, from my calendar, there's periods of the year where it's very quiet, but then there's periods where things are really fast-paced. I would just love to hear your thoughts, because you've done some exciting projects, but these projects, I assume, are spread out throughout the year, not project after project I'm, I'm just curious of the workflow from a project standpoint so people have a flavor of what it's like in the industry on that side of things yeah I mean again I suppose it depends where you are in sport and what sort of sport you're working on and stuff because obviously um like there's a, a sort of tournament flow of things that particularly in marketing might mean that you're focused on things more different times of year um we so we've got a, a private community for pro talent access stars which is pretty consistent in terms of the the level of um work that that needs because that is you know we've got members who are footballers cricketers rugby players etc so there's never a kind of holiday period because the footballers might all be on holiday but the cricketers are all currently playing in the hundred and all that sort of stuff so there's not um a sort of break really across the year for that and I suppose that would be where I think there is a a need probably for some more consistent longer term work to be being done in the sports industry overall that if it was being treated more like strategies are in companies I mean you know I always talk about it from a football club perspective you look at like the the short amount of time that managers actually get to prove themselves, that would never happen in a company like a Unilever or a L'Oreal. You know, you have a five-year strategy, you've got plans in place of what you're going to do and you're left to get on with that and deliver it. Whereas there's this pressure, particularly in football, although you look at what's happened in rugby recently as well with all the clubs that are folding. You I'm know, a London Irish fan. Uh, yeah mm. I'm sorry yeah but carry sorry on but it's that. a good point <laughs> I, I know it's so important because it's all strategy related so carry on but I'm just yeah being real. and I think I think this is where it hasn't I think people have come into football rugby whatever from outside not necessarily thinking about it in the right way in terms of 
yes, they are companies, but they are clubs more than anything. And there is, you know, it's it's not like a straight choice between Pepsi and Coke. And if you annoy fans, they're just going to go and support another team. You know, this is in their blood. Their grandparents supported the team. It's come through like they can't just switch allegiance. And so making kind of alienating fans, I guess, and looking at bigger money opportunities and not considering what that means for the local community and all that sort of stuff is not great for the longevity of a club. Um, And I think, you know, yes, there's a lot of money that comes in from TV deals and that kind of thing, but it's still not really a sustainable business model. I think particularly in the championship, the amount of money that has to be put into clubs just to keep them going and stuff, you know, it's not really viable um and that's where for me if there was a sort of more consistent long-term approach about right how are you going to build this business and what is needed over the next three to five years to ten years whatever I think you've got a better chance of succeeding but it's not necessarily going to get you like an instant top six position and stuff like that and obviously the pressure is on in terms of trophies and return and all of that kind of thing which makes it tricky i'm going to put you on the spot kate how would you define an effective strategy at a sports club how would you define it um well i mean you've got within football you've obviously got a real range so i'll talk more championship clubs because i think they're they're probably more the ones that it's maybe possible to sort of turn it around and make it a going concern. But you've got to be looking at how do you make it profitable or at least be breaking even. And some of the stuff um, that I hear about some of the approaches to the way clubs are being managed and, you know, even I've, I've been at Sheffield Wednesday. In fact, I when I was still... I don't know if I was living at home, maybe I wasn't, but I basically, it was whenever Lee Strafford was our chairman, so quite a long time ago, but I was going to games and, you know, half the sponsorship advertising hoardings weren't sold, half the stadium wasn't full, and I just couldn't understand it from a sort of marketing perspective. I was like, I feel like there is a solution to this, and so I got in touch with Lee Strafford and said, you know, I don't know what your sort of marketing strategy is, but if there's anything that I can do to help, like, let me know. And so um, the marketing team invited me in and I'm now friends with the two lads who were there at the time. But I'm sure at the time they thought, who is this girl like coming in and sort of dissing our work? But I realized a lot of things through speaking to them that I didn't necessarily know about before. So one thing to consider is you can't be doing loads of ticket deals if it's going to be to the detriment of someone who's bought a season ticket, because obviously you've got all of their money up front. And so, yes, it sounded simple to me to do a two for one deal. And why wouldn't you just fill the stadium? But actually, it wouldn't be fair if you kept doing that to season ticket holders. Secondly, you have to have the agreement of the away team to do any ticket deals as well. And depending on who those teams are coming to watch Sheffield Wednesday at Hillsborough, they're probably sort of banking on the fact that they're going to get a good um attendance of their fans and you know so there's all those kind of things um that do make it tricky but I still feel like there's maybe sometimes a bit of complacency in that yes there's tv money coming in and stuff but I'm not sure how much and although to be fair I used to say this pre-pandemic and then obviously we were all watching football that was in an empty stadium but I feel like even if people are watching it you know on the other side of the world 
part of the attraction is the fact that there is a full stadium and people want to watch it in person and this is like the next best thing that they can get when they're watching wherever they live sort of thing so I think to be so dependent on TV money and not to be thinking about the ways that they could be generating revenue and stuff in the home audience and within the community is a bit short-sighted um there's quite an interesting there's a company CLV that do a fan relationship index each year and they sort of look at the value of fans but the different types like what is the value of an armchair supporter versus one in the stadium versus one watching you know in Asia for example for Man United and actually if you get a bit more focused on where your audience is that's where you could start to sell multiple sponsorship deals and rather than having them playing with a a brand on their shirt that we can't even buy in the UK because they've sold it to get sponsorship elsewhere they can start to actually map those deals so that fans are getting value from it here and then the fans elsewhere are seeing different things and so there's there's opportunities to to just have a different approach I think in terms of the way they slice and dice commercial deals and stuff so you're saying so I put my sponsorship hat on you mean like looking at geographical locations on a certain niche related to them to then do a win-win with the fan and then exactly the, the yeah. football club itself yeah yeah cool. and I think that's where women's football can really not make the mistakes that men's football's made in the past you know it's it's becoming such an attractive proposition for brands to get involved with and they can kind of do it right from the start because they've not got the stuff that's sort of gotten stuck in a rut like maybe men's football has do you think I'm putting on spot women's football because I've sort of been involved in a project last four years on this and I'm learning that brands are on like the fence going, should we give it a go? Like, but I think you said it beautifully of like, it's a fresh blueprint. What would you like to see differently? So you're not doing a copy and paste job from the men's game. I'm all about good practice in any other sports, but could you just elaborate what you mean of like a fresh approach? Because I love that saying, what you just said there with regards to women's football of a sponsorship standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that any brands that are getting involved and to be honest I'd, I'd say we're getting to the point now where it might be a little bit bandwagony for brands that are getting involved from this point on but brands that have been involved you know probably for the last like you say three or four years they're not just badging something as sponsorship they're actually like growing a really important game and contributing to the growth of that and contributing to you know, properly being able to support these female athletes. I mean, it, it, we've got over 30% of our members of Access Stars are female athletes. And, you know, you hear people saying like, oh, rugby games, for example, some of the score lines, if it's like a 50 odd nil, it's just not suitable for TV. And the girls that play would agree. But the fact is they're doing like a night shift as a doctor or a firefighter. And then they're coming into training and then they're playing matches. Like if we expect a certain standard of sport and professionalism, then we've got to give them the room to be able to do that. We have to give them the resources, the time um, to get there. And you can see that that's happening now in football, definitely. And rugby and cricket are starting to get more support and stuff. But I think I mean, the the salary cap is changing now in women's rugby, but last season it was like 120,000 across a, a squad of 40. Like that is just, how can they expect professional players with that sort of funding? 
I'm so glad you mentioned that because let's be honest, women's sport, particularly football and rugby, because I've known, I've interviewed a few, it's always been a dual career. Annie Aluko uh-huh. was a lawyer during her football career when she was at Chelsea. Yeah. Nadia Nadim, she's a doctor in her own right as well. And that's where we can't compare men's sport to female sport because the career paths is totally different. And actually, it, it's brought the subject really well because I want to talk about today's podcast topic. We're actually launching this or Sport Integrity Week. And I reached out to Kate about all about integrity and it relates to today's podcast topic. Like, why is athlete integrity and support really important with regards to that career development for an athlete after their career? I mean, I think within sport, the athletes and the fans tend to be the last two people to be consulted on everything. And yet, really, they are the two essential parts to any sport. Without them, there's nothing. I mean, I, I did a presentation recently and I was saying without athletes, we're literally sitting watching the grass grow. Like there is nothing to watch without them. And yet we treat them quite often like a commodity, particularly if you look at, you know, the way we react to them in the press and the way we're so quick to sort of knock them down off the pedestals that we've put them on. But they are working so hard they're training hard they are yes there is a a sort of whole range of pay and absolutely some people are on money that we couldn't even possibly kind of imagine but you know if someone was prepared to pay you that for your job you're not necessarily going to turn it down so I think it's not fair to kind of say anything about that and it and it is only the sort of one percent of players that are on those crazy salaries really so you know we're we're being entertained by them. We're um, getting our sort of use out of them, as it were. But then the average career length for football, cricket, rugby, it's all around like seven or eight years. And then they've got the whole rest of their lives ahead of them. And they're not necessarily equipped to be able to know what to do next they've sort of so focused on their talent and really mastering that and focusing on what they've got to do that suddenly overnight they are not masters of anything anymore they've got all this autonomy but they don't necessarily know what to do with it and I think you know it is our duty to sort of make sure that there is a long-term player care and there is support for them um the other thing I think as a you know I I'm very passionate about all kinds of things from like social injustice to environmental change, all of that sort of stuff. But a lot of these athletes have got huge platforms to be able to really make a difference through and look at what Marcus Rashford did on school dinners and stuff. And, you know, they obviously don't have to. They do sort of automatically become role models by being an athlete, but they don't have to then continue to use that platform post-retirement. But those who want to, I think, again, have got a real potential to make a difference in the world. But it's very hard to sort of stick your head above the parapet if you don't feel like you've got that support network around you and you, you're not sure what's going to happen and whether people are going to kind of shoot you down and stuff. So I think from that point of view, they need support and a, a longer-term plan. And just with regards to the integrity part, why that elements important because that's one of my personal values and it's why I joined the Sega Youth Council with regards to it's like grid policies the integrity side but I I like the point you said earlier that sometimes we just look at the athletes of like an item of entertainment instead of them as human beings I've had a few athletes on and 
I'm going to be honest, some of the athletes I had, they're so down to earth. When you lower, like when you find that integrity with them, whilst being so talented in their individual sport or team sport. So I just would love to hear your thoughts because you work with athletes. Why that integrity is so vital? I mean, I think the, the sports industry is one that has a limited amount of trust, I would say. You know, I mean, I've worked in lots of different companies and lots of different places and sport I have found is a bit of a shocker, really. I, I think it's quite backward in a lot of ways in terms of things that happen. And, um, you know, partly, I guess, because of the money sort of sloshing around in certain areas, it attracts people that don't have the greatest integrity and that are, you know, looking out for themselves have their own particular objectives and it is really hard to know who to trust even within organizations that you would think well you know they're a governing body or whatever it's it's still hard I think there is um in any I suppose in any sort of competitive environment and sport is obviously hugely competitive there is uh an attraction to corruption I guess in terms of the pressure that exists from the competition and how can you win and all of that kind of stuff. So I think it's really important to maintain integrity in this industry because it it needs a hell of a lot more into it. And, and that's why we got involved with Sega from a, an Axis Stars perspective. We have um, Katie from Sega is on our admissions and ethics committee. So we have a, a, a range of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, whether they've worked in law sustainability finance um charity etc who i've had two on the show have you danny donachy oh yeah who came on in season one amazing guy with embodyism yeah and everton football club and the other one was victoria Rush, okay yeah, yeah. to know women no try so when i saw your advisors of diversity meaning different sports different injury how important is that because you didn't just stick to football professionals you've got different people from different sports so Sorry, the, and those two are fan. And last with Danny Donica, I still remember it because I interviewed him in Manchester. He said, Ed, the hardest part is teaching a young footballer like that, you know, near the age of 30, which is, let's say, half their life of retirement age in traditional employment. They're, they're thinking of retirement. And that's the hardest mental battle, like mindset side. So carry on. I'd love to hear your thoughts, but they're great people. Yeah, I mean, what, one thing to add on the mindset side that um, is kind of fascinating. So to become a footballer in the Premier League, the chances are like 0.0012%. But if you speak to, you know, an 18-year-old kid in, in the academy, they will be confident that they're going to smash those odds and they're going to make it. When you then try to say to a Premier League footballer who is now in the Premier League, maybe they're like 22 or something, oh, by the way, 40% of Premier League footballers are going to go bankrupt or have financial hardship within five years of retiring – they can't possibly imagine that that might happen to them. And you just think, but you smashed a 0.0012% chance and you're not preparing for the fact that there's a 40% chance that this could happen. So again, I think that's where someone, I, I keep quoting this person and I feel really bad because I cannot remember who said it to me and I thought it was a really good point. So if ever anybody remembers who this is, do let me know. But they were saying um, nobody puts as much effort into plan B so when you're looking at education of like academy kids and stuff, saying it's a plan B 
is not appropriate because one, they're not going to want to think about not making it because obviously this is their dream and they're putting all their work in. But the fact is, it isn't a plan B because you are going to retire. Even if you make it, you are going to retire in your early 30s and you're going to need to do something from that point on. So it should just be part of your plan A is that you're also preparing for your future and making sure that you've got the right sort of financial provisions in place and all of that kind of stuff. But it's not really taught in the right way at the moment. So it is tricky. It is like I'm going to have to give some case studies, but you know, West Brown this year, uh, Craig, Craig Bellamy, like when I saw Craig Bellamy and West Brown within a two week period, I'm a, I'm a Man United fan, but it just saddened me with regards to the, how it happened, not, and also them finding solutions. So let's get, I would love you to firstly, just for the listeners, this thing, they've heard access sports a couple of times. Could you just paint the picture of how it got created? Uh, I'm going to mention his name, but Louis Sahar is involved in this. Just for people to understand what this community is all about. Yeah, yeah. So Louis is the um, the creator of it. Um, so he came up with the idea towards the end of his career. Um, started So he was writing his book and sort of started speaking to his peers and people in other sports and realised that, you know, it is a real commonality across different sports where you even if you're playing in a team it's actually very difficult to be a true team because you're still competing for places with some of those members you still don't necessarily want to show any vulnerability and so it's only towards the end of his career when he was speaking to people that he realized that everyone was having the same sort of problems in that you were being kind of surrounded in a bit of a allegedly protective bubble by agents clubs etc people saying they would take care of things for you best case scenario those people do take care of things for you but it's not really in their interest to explain to you what they're doing because they're obviously charging you and you're a client and that's how they make their money worst case scenario you've got people around you that you effectively get a, a sort of whole ecosystem feeding off you basically and so some of the time people are making decisions on your behalf based on their best interests rather than your best interests. We hear it a lot where, um, you know, an agent might be approached about a particular deal, but if it's not worth their while in terms of what they're going to get, then they don't necessarily even tell their client that that deal was put to them. So um, it is a very difficult place with, there absolutely is a need for agents, business managers, et cetera, in the industry. We're not, trying to replace them we just want to make sure that they are genuinely working for their clients and that their clients are empowered enough to make sure that they're getting what they need from them and they've got the right questions to ask them and they've got the right sort of framework to be able to evaluate them against so um the access stars community is this private community we've got an app you can go into the app, you can network with other pro talent. So primarily it's athletes in there, but we do have some entertainers because it's the same problem for like musicians, comedians, actors, etc. cetera. Um, but we're kind of focused on sport at the moment, obviously based on like Louis's experience and stuff. So we've got um, footballers in there, rugby players, cricketers, athletes, boxers, Formula One drivers, tennis players, etc. And um that's one of the real positives about it in that you can actually learn from different industries and sort of share experiences. So we've got, you know, former um, international footballers mentoring current rugby league players who want to get into player care and, you know, all kinds of 
great sort of relationships that have sparked out of that. The other thing is that we've got female athletes in there and they're not like separated out into a, this is a thing for female athletes. So again, there's some good opportunities where female athletes who've already got their own business can give some advice to, you know, retired Premier League players that are just starting a business. But in exchange, they can give them advice about how to get more sponsorship deals or how to get more media work, that kind of thing. So the the talking and the sharing really brings a kind of strength in numbers element to the community. And then we focus on three areas. So well-being, personal development, and then sort of financial stability, basically. So making sure that there are trusted providers in there for all the insurance that you might need, like career ending insurance and stuff, financial advisors, lawyers to check contracts, etc. But then we also have um, we work with a lot of broadcasters so we can connect people with media work. We work with brands who are looking for like ambassadors and stuff. And, you know, as a marketing person, I would always say that rather than a kind of man-made influencer, that they're whole job is being an influencer working with someone who has a following for the game they play the sport they do they have much sort of stronger engagement for particular products that are relevant to what they're doing and so that that can be a real good opportunity for brands to sort of work with people that they wouldn't normally work with um and then we we do kind of education and networking pieces around all the sorts of things that Athletes might not want to proactively admit that they don't know about something, but they can kind of discreetly upskill themselves on this stuff by, you know, they've got the app, it's on their phone. They can just read a quick article about five things to check if you're asked to sign a contract or stuff like that. And then they've just got those bits of advice without having to sort of know who to trust and that kind of thing. I love it. I love what you've just said. And I love the bit about the different pillars. Could you just dig deep on one of them of like, how do you define well-being? Because we said just before we came on about like the importance of like the mental health, you know, it's all defined differently. So I'm just curious of well-being side of the three pillars. Yeah. So I think, I mean, well-being can span quite a lot of stuff really, because part of it is just feeling confident in like the circle that you've got around you and feeling that you've got people that you can speak to and you're in a a sort of safe space um we're still building out you know all the different sort of suppliers and stuff that we would have in the platform but that's where Danny who we were talking about before is obviously helping us in terms of you know it might be the case that you're injured and you know you would think that doctors at all of the big clubs are like the absolute top-notch doctors but they aren't always and sometimes players don't massively trust that they're looking out for them I think the other thing to bear in mind is you know a club might be looking out for you to get you to be able to play again in three months time but are they thinking about what your knees are going to be like when you're in your mid-40s and you know that kind of thing so having a provision to be able to get like second opinions from rehab specialists, from doctors, all of that sort of stuff can contribute to your well-being. Um, Just being able to speak to people who have lived the same experience as you is quite valuable as well. So, you know, you might feel that you can't really speak to family or your agent or whatever about a situation that you're going through, but you might know a player that 
previously did this and you can just message them through the platform we have a, a, a sort of identifier if someone is open for just anyone to contact them with questions and stuff they have a little star by their name so people know that they can get in touch and say can you give me some advice on x y or z um and then we're partnering with organizations so um against the odds which is an organization that's starting to do a lot of training about gambling addiction and they're going into like foundations and academies and stuff but they're in the platform we're going to be doing a webinar with them soon um better the mental health charity or another partner that are in there so again looking at where you can get, can get in touch with people we have a, a whole helpline section pretty much as soon as you go into the app about all kinds of different things with numbers and websites and stuff that people can go to if they need some urgent help on a particular topic. Um, and then our, our member care team is sort of always around for if people have got specific questions that helps us to then build the, the platform out further because we can start to see what are people looking for, what sort of support do they need? And then we can obviously make sure that we're building that out if we've not got enough support in those particular areas but I think the other thing is just understanding those different career paths for the different sports and what things you might be going to through I mean we we posted a thing today that um 50 to 70 percent of rugby players don't decide their retirement on their own terms you know because they get a concussion or um deselection or whatever it might be and and those kind of things are massive for your well-being that one minute you're playing and the next minute you're not and if you haven't been able to make that choice that is really hard so you know how can you be as prepared and resilient for that as possible and what sort of things can you do now to make that less painful I mean it's never going to not be painful but um you know, throwing your heart and soul into something like this, which is such a dream for most people, you know, it's something that they've wanted to do from a very young age, and they've worked really hard, and they've made it. But then it might only last a few years, and they've got to sort of recalibrate then, and decide what they're going to do from that point on. It's, it's, uh, it's not a career that I would want, I don't think. I think it's that reality check, which we just, I just say as a saying, but for them, it's a different approach because like you said the hard work there's one thing I do want to bring in which I had a big smile when I saw it because I do follow your stories and I saw that story today the community aspect of networking you did like a six aside uh, and you brought people together playing like how important is that component one they're all athletes anyway and it's sport but from a networking community standpoint could you talk about these little five asides? Because I thought it was fantastic when I saw that as well. Yeah, I think it's really important because, again, it's people that understand each other in terms of where they're coming from and what they've been through. And so I think it, it is important. And again, it's you're not necessarily, you know, you, I suppose you look at these athletes and you see that they've played for loads of different teams and you think they've had all of these different teammates, but actually they don't necessarily stay in touch with loads of them. And so it is quite a, a positive thing. I mean, there was the big like game for Ukraine at the weekend that just went and you looked at all the players that got together then. Like, it is really nice for them to be able to meet up with each other and see what everyone's doing and that kind of thing. So, and I think, it, you know, mixing from a wider variety of sports and stuff, we've got a, um, we're doing like an athlete business showcase 
later this month in Manchester. So again, a sort of networking event, but athletes that have gone on to start their own business can sort of drive, raise awareness of it and, you know, talk to the audience there about what they've done and how they've set up the business and all that kind of thing, just as a way to um, get them a bit more exposure on those things as well. Because I think that's the other thing, no matter what you go on to do, if you're interviewed by any press, it tends to appear on the back page. And yeah, they might say like two lines about what are you doing now? But then they want to ask you like, have Arsenal got a chance of winning the league or whatever? They're the sort of questions that they want to put. So we're trying to really highlight and showcase the fact that there is far more to all of these athletes than they've played football. Yeah, but then they've gone on to do X, Y or Z. So it's important to show all the other things that they're doing as well. 100%. 100%. Now, I'm going to put a big question here because I think it's important to the listeners. As you probably experience now, when you work with athletes, you will just like when I, when I was younger, I was nervous. But from what advice we give to listeners who are working with athletes, like for me now, I've done a few podcasts, I've done a few projects, and I just treat them like human beings. But for us who haven't been in their world, there's that nervousness, or sometimes you're not being you as an individual, like from how you communicate. I'd just love to hear any tips you give to listeners when working with these elite athletes from the other side of them as individuals, not just them as sport professionals. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, they are just humans and definitely just be speaking to them as you would to anyone else. I think they have been in very different worlds. And again, this depends on what sport they've played and that kind of thing. So, you know, the way that I would interact with certain sports people would be different to others. But I think if you're looking at like top level football and recently retired from that, like they're not going to, you wouldn't be working with them or speaking with them in the same way that you would be working with someone that you'd be working with back in an office or or that kind of thing, because they just have gone through a very different experience where you know, they're sort of told when to arrive somewhere, what they're eating, how to train, all of that sort of stuff. Um, And it can be quite a culture shock, I think, if they're then working in a different environment or or whatever. Um, So I, I suppose I'd say it would depend how you're working with them. But just like with anybody that you're working with, I guess you take the time to understand like what motivates them, what how do they want to work what's their preferred way of working that kind of thing just like if you were joined by new teammates in a team in a in a corporate world or whatever you'd be asking like how is it best that I communicate with you and you know I've got some um players that I work with that I say they're like ostrich like in that if you ask them a question about whether they want to do something and they don't want to do it they just ignore the message and now I know that means they don't want to do it. But I'm like, why don't you just reply and say, I don't want to do it? But it's like they get this sort of awkwardness. And so they're just like, I'm just going to ignore that message. But if you didn't realize that, you might then think, oh, God, I can never message them about anything again. Whereas I'm always, you know, I'll chase someone multiple times on stuff. But I'll always be saying, like, I'm really sorry to be a nag. And like, if you don't want me to chase you anymore on this, just let me know. But quite often, they will be saying, no, no, sorry, I keep forgetting, please do remind me if I don't do it again, whatever it might be, you know, if it's like, sometimes we do um, deals with brands where they'll give product for free, and they have to do a social media post, and I'll have to like chase them up several times to be like, 
don't forget to do your social media post about this brand. But I think as long as you're, again, this is whoever you're interacting with, really, as long as you're being genuine and honest about what it is that you need and why you need it and stuff, then I don't think anybody can have a problem with how you communicate. Um, but yeah, it can it can be tricky. And I suppose you've got to bear in mind like schedules and things that they're dealing with and all of that sort of stuff as well. Because um, even players that are sort of retired but still well-known, you know, if you're out and about with them, you realise just how much they get kind of hassled by people coming up and wanting to do selfies and wanting autographs and all of that. And that obviously is quite draining, I think, in the end. But um yeah, I suppose it's just being conscious of everything else that they've got going on. But I would say that about anybody that you're working with, not just athletes, I guess. 100%. And just going back to your career now, like reflecting, what have you enjoyed the most from your career journey looking back right now? Um, I mean, I think it's hard to pull out anything in particular, to be honest. I, I sort of see it all as like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, and I still don't really know what the picture is that I'm going to end up creating I just know that the pieces are useful and I think everything that you do you know and it hasn't been the case that I've like loved every aspect of every job that I've done and I've had times where I've really not enjoyed things that I've been working on but it all kind of weaves into the fabric of who you are and it is all stuff that you can draw on and I think you know I've had bad managers but I've probably learned more from a bad manager than I have from a good manager in terms of thinking right when I manage someone I'm not going to do that or I'm going to make sure I ask them x y or z so I think everything that I've done has been a great sort of learning experience I've been fortunate to go to great events like the World Cup in Russia and um, you know the BAFTAs when Orange used to sponsor them and was able to take my mum to the BAFTAs and we sat like in with famous people and stuff and she thought that was great so you know all kinds of sort of perks like that I guess that stand out as good memories but equally coming up with like really good marketing campaigns and stuff has been great helping clients now in terms of you know redesigning how they do business or helping them create new um, ways of working and stuff I um, enjoy all of it, really, I guess. So it's hard for me to say anything specific. No, I love the answer. I want to dig deep one more. You said about the, like, learning from, sort of, I call it good practice, that like you learn more from a bad manager that made you a better manager when you approach that role. Just for people listening with the Sega Global Mentor Program, I know you're one of the mentors. Like, did you have, like, mentors during your career journey? And what's excited you to be a mentor for this program to make sure people do things best practice relating to your experience. I'm just, cause I think this is really important because mentoring has shaped me as an individual, but like anything, you do need to see bad practice to see good practice done. Right. Not just management. Yeah. So I suppose in terms of my mentors, they've been less formal than a sort of structured mentoring program, but there's been um, both kind of managers that I've had. So one of my, well, the best manager that I ever had um, was Gail Tate, who was the general manager at L'Oreal when I first joined there. And she was absolutely brilliant as a manager. And I'm still in touch with her now. She now works for Trove out in the US. But um, she's someone that I definitely 
you know, massively value her sort of opinion and feedback. Um, but then there's other people that I've worked with or alongside or who have just been in like a wider team and I've not necessarily had direct contact in a work perspective with, but have been able to kind of bounce ideas off and that kind of thing. So a whole range of people, I guess, that way. Um, in terms of mentoring, so I mentor on the SEGA Women's Programme, but then I also mentor for a programme called Career Ready, which is like a year 12 kid each year that um, is in a school in London normally. And you sort of speak to them about like their career hopes and dreams. I um, mentor an MBA student every year at my old uni, Aston. Um, and then I also have done two waves of the Creative Mentor Network, which partners with Soho House. Um, so that's more sort of like mid 20 year olds wanting to get into the creative industries and stuff. And so I think it's quite interesting to have that range of ages of people mentoring and looking at, you know, the different ways that you can support people at different stages of their career. Um, and I think it's it's interesting the sort of difference between like coaching and mentoring because mentoring is far more about listening to what it is that the person wants to be doing and then sort of helping them think around ways that they could address that or sharing your own experience with them to give them examples of things that have happened but you're not necessarily sort of coaching them to like drive them in a particular direction um so I think that just having that sort of sounding board and advice is really um, useful. But then I, I think the great thing about the SEGA women's mentoring program is it kind of becomes quite a two-way, well, for any mentor, and it is a two-way process really, but I think the way that they organize this mentoring program and have like the workshops that we look at different topics and it's mentors and mentees in the same um zoom calls and we're chatting about you know important topics for sport and stuff I think you can you can get a lot of um value out of mentoring as much as being mentored so um that's why it's a a really interesting process for me I'd say 100% and I always like to finish with an inspirational question I've really enjoyed this conversation but for the listeners listening in for taking action after this podcast like what three tips would you give to the listener with regards to pursuing a career in the sports industry? Like what would those three tips be? Oh, okay. Three tips. Um, so definitely like have a crack at anything that you fancy getting involved in. Um, I mean, the the reason that I am now a co-founder of Axis Stars was because I read an interview that Louis did in The Guardian about his idea for it. And I thought that sounds quite interesting. And I looked him up on LinkedIn and I thought it was probably a spoof account, but I'm going to message him. And then he replied quite quickly. And so I thought oh, it must be a spoof account. I'm going to call this guy's bluff. And then it was him and, and the rest is history. So never sort of talk yourself out of an opportunity before you've had a crack at it, like hustle and get in there. And particularly, I think, you know, if you're looking at wanting to move into sport from a different industry or whatever then doing things on the side a bit or getting involved with projects or particularly I think you know there's a lot of charities and stuff that work in sport that I'm sure could use people's expertise from different areas and that could help with the transition from one industry to another so yeah have a crack at stuff um what else 
I think don't be discouraged from bringing in proper like rigor and integrity to whatever you do because the industry definitely needs cleaning up and I think if there are things that you are used to doing from other places that you've worked or whatever don't let people talk you out of it and say oh that wouldn't work in sport or whatever because it works for pretty much every other business on the planet so I think stick to your guns on that and um, wherever you can have sort of rigor and integrity and the third thing what else would I say um I think one thing that is great about the sports industry is the sort of networking element of it and I think you know you can like find your tribe within it in terms of different communities and stuff and I think it's really important to sort of support each other you know the same we rise by lifting others so I think wherever you can champion projects of other people or you know give them support when they're posting about them on LinkedIn or whatever it might be I think your network is super important and particularly in sport people move around you never know when you're going to bump into them again so um yeah sort of support and champion each other wherever possible I'd say I love that third one I'm all about encouragement like I that's something I've learned really early on and like you say, raising people up to where they want to be, it all goes full circle, in my humble opinion. So I love those three. Out of interest, how can people, Kate, like connect with you on social media and also like follow Access Stars? They should be following the Instagram page for definite. There's a little hint, everybody. But just for listeners, like where are the best places to go? Yeah, so for Access Stars, we're just Access Stars everywhere. So AXIS Stars um for me uh feel free to add me on linkedin i am a stickler if you don't write a message as to why you're connecting i do reject people so um just write me a note as to why you're joining and i will accept you um i am on instagram but um well if you want random posts about climate change social injustice philosophy masters and marketing then follow hamer kate h-a-m-e-r-k-a-t-e um, but otherwise, Access Stars is probably your main one from a sports perspective. Amazing. To all the listeners listening in, all those links will be on my website with regards to this podcast chat. Kate, it's been a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a fascinating podcast chat with Kate. And it's conversations like this that light me up, particularly with regards to her career journey. Starting at Orange, getting really involved in the digital marketing with regards to Unilever and then Disney and then having the courage to reach out to Louis Sahar with regards to creating access stars, with regards to supporting players with their needs during and after their career on and off the pitch. And for me, it's journeys like this where you can take the lessons from Kate, from her experience, and apply to your journey right now. And with regards to today's podcast topic, I hope you've got a better understanding why sport integrity is so key with regards to pursuing a career in the sports industry, but also when working with professional football players, athletes, musicians, and entertainers. Like it really goes back to one of her tips, or career tips, I should say, of getting involved, but doing it with integrity. And without a doubt, when I've taken integrity, when I say seriously, when I apply it to my personal values with every project I do, when I interact with people, it really sets the tone of who you are and how you deliver even your first impression with regards to your communication and body language. So 
without a doubt, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast chat from different avenues, from a marketing standpoint, integrity standpoint, working with elite athletes, which then you can apply to your sports career development right now. So without a doubt, as I said, this conversation, we've launched this on Sport Integrity Week with Augusta Sega. If you want to check them out too, please do and learn more about their events and how you can educate yourself more on the real importance of sport integrity in the sports industry. But with regards to this podcast chat, make sure you apply your key learning lesson from this podcast and apply it right now. I mean, right now after you listen to this into your sports career development now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Kate said, get yourself out there, work with integrity and network effectively in the sports industry in the areas you want to specialize in.